Eric Lawrence Eric Jack Eric DC Eric DY Ladies and gents today can only be described as a monster episode because we have five hunks on the call one of which is Dr. Eric Helms. Now, here at Bodybuilding Down Under, we've been around for a while, a little bit, and people always say to us, you know, the banter's excellent, there's a lot of in-the-trenches experience. We've got the whole bodybuilding experience down pat, but we've long been criticized for our lack of contributions to the science field, but that's all about to change because we have confirmed that BDU is coming out with its first ever research study, and for a while now, we've had the research question, we've had the methods, the design, even the participants, but what we've been lacking is a big name, you know, a heavy hitter that we can slap on the front of that journal article so that we got a bit of street cred so that we can get into the more influential, you know, publishing streams within the ivory tower. And we now have that man. So that's firstly what we're going to discuss to open the podcast today. And we are actually going to reveal the title of the study, which is the inclusion and exclusion of mayonnaise on a KFC Zinger Burger <laughs> and its effects on body composition in resistance trained men and women, a randomized controlled trial. So Eric, your immediate thoughts. My immediate thoughts are probably should be a crossover. So we don't need as high of a sample. You know, you get only 10 people, which is a tough thing to do in these low funded difficult fields of sports science and sports nutrition. Um, and I think in this case, where the intervention is going to be quite pleasurable, they're going to be happy to, to cross over and do it again. Um, and unless the crossover is control where they just don't get it. But if it's, if it's just the addition of mayonnaise or not, then I think people would be happy to, you know, whatever the control condition is, my advice is perhaps a different sauce rather than no sauce. I think you'll keep adherence and participant retention quite high. Um, cause then you can sell it as, oh, we don't know which sauce is better or worse for body composition, depending on what the hypothesis is, but, um, but both are going to be tasted. See, we hadn't even thought about that stuff, guys. And that's why we needed Eric on board. Now I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Eric, just initially your first thoughts, obviously you've read through what we have so far. What mm -hmm. is the hypothesis? Like, what are you thinking is actually going to play out here? It's going to be dependent upon the answer to that question. So if we're comparing like barbecue sauce to mayonnaise, my thoughts are probably the barbecue sauce condition is going to have marginally better benefits uh, for body composition. Well, I mean, what, benefit, like what are we going for here? Is it just accumulating mass of any type? Then mayonnaise obviously is going to come out on top. But if it's barbecue sauce and we're looking for, you know, maybe maybe leaner gains. Um, just just yeah. remember that fat loading is is clearly superior to carbohydrate loading, however. So, you know, maybe the mayonnaise might come out on top, right? And that's another important aspect. We need randomization because if you're going to have the barbecue and then the mayonnaise, we're actually shifting the proportion of carbohydrate to fat. So if we can get the, like the Scott Stevenson approved, you know, method of having the higher carb first, and then we go lower carbon load fat you might find that those people are fuller um, while the other group, you know, look at them and be like, geez, these guys need some cheesecake. Um, and which is why it'd be better to, you know, probably keep an eye on them just to make sure they're not taking that trip to, to, cause you know, they're going to be seeing their flatness in the mirror. 
you know, so mm. just going home, you know, uh, so, so how, how tightly controlled this is and the potential for participants to go off the rails and do their own thing. It's, there's some high risk to this. So I think getting some, uh, some oversight will be important. The IRB or the ethics, you know, depending on which university we go through, who wants some U.S. collaborators, um, you know, then it, I think all, all that will, will be a relevant factor. No, well, thank you so much for your time today, Eric. Where can they find you? <laughs> At KFC uh, or, or ordering my, my sandwich and and, uh, and nowhere else. So that's pretty much it. No, well, mate, thank you so much for being on Bodybuilding Down Under. And uh, we were thrilled to find out that you were a listener. So it only made sense to get you on as a guest. And, mate, thank you for making the effort because you have only been in your now home country of New Zealand for mere hours from returning from Paris. So how was your trip away with Barb, mate? It was a fabulous. No, it was great. Uh, we had our, our 18th anniversary, um, which means that we now have an adult relationship. As in our, re our relationship is literally the age of an adult, which makes me feel old. Um, yeah, so we had our 18th year anniversary. Uh, we spent it good five days in Paris and one day in Orléans, or Orleans, as we like to call it, where I'm originally from. Um, not New Orleans, old Orleans, apparently, original Orleans. But uh, that's a beautiful little town an hour outside of Paris where uh, my wife is doing some um, some methodological learnings for her her studies. Um, so she's actually stayed there for a couple more weeks. It's, we kind of tacked on this initial trip because uh, the timing of when our anniversary is and when her trip was for that. So it was really good. Um, first time I've actually been in, in France. So I managed to hit up almost everywhere else in Europe in my random conference speaking and gigs and traveling and whatnot and powerlifting and coaching and bodybuilding stuff. So uh, it was really cool. And um, yeah, I just got back 5 a.m. this morning in Auckland. It is a little bit afternoon right now. And uh, yeah, not jet lag, ready to rock. You guys are keeping me awake. I got to make it at least till 8 p.m. So I know, so. I know when we go on holidays, we often get asked about what we do with training and food. So I'm sure maybe the listeners are keen to hear what you did over there, given that you're on holiday. Absolutely. So first thing I'd recommend is looking up hotels with good gyms within them. That's, that's the best way to go because then least amount of travel, you don't have to worry about transport, you don't have to worry about, you know, the additional cost. So the first thing I did was I got on and I started Googling, like, what's, what's the best gym in central Paris that has, I'm sorry, the best hotel in central Paris that has a gym and, and where is that? And there was, there's a website, I can't remember what it is. It's like, uh, it'll probably pop up if you Google it, but the second best rated gym in Paris for traveling that what like hotel with a gym i keep misspeaking is novatel uh, eiffel tower and it's definitely acceptable for bodybuilding if you're doing like if you want like a powerlifting gym while you travel not not going to cut it but it's got a smith machine it's got a bench it's not a good bench but it's definitely one you can lay down and, and bench press it's not standard like size plates or anything like that so rdls yes deadlifts no and honestly anything pulling from the floor probably a no because it's like just wood flooring it's like for an exercise it looks like like a little ballet studio that they've put equipment in and then mm -hmm. they have uh techno gym leg press uh a really good row um they have a, a lat pull down slash tricep push down station and 
leg extension, leg curl, so seated for both. Um, Techno Gym is very hit and miss in my experience. They have, they have a chest press as well, but it's quite functional. So um, pretty pretty good for, for a hotel gym. And, good enough uh, to get by. Absolutely. I mean, I had some good workouts there, so did Barb. And almost all of the, like, touristy stuff doesn't open until, like, 9 a.m. at the earliest in Paris. So the hotel, you can get access to the gym at 7.30 a.m. Uh, in Novotel. So you can get your workout done and then just go start your day. And Novotel also has pretty good food. Uh, so we bought the breakfast with the stay. So that starts at 6 a.m. every day. So we're waking up, 6 a.m. breakfast, enough time to digest, get to the gym at 7.30, finish the workout, and then, you know, great public transportation. Obviously, it's Paris. And you're getting to the stuff at 9 a.m. And, yo, in those five days, we did Eiffel Tower, the Catacombs, Arc de Triomphe, the Louvre, three different museums, and there's like 300 there. We had a a nice trip down down the Seine. It was great, but yeah, no, it was it was it was a really good um, way to. I scheduled a deload while we were there, basically, um, and you know when you're only doing like five exercises a day compared to my normal volume and just three to four sets, um, and just having slightly limited equipment access, it's kind of like a natural deload, but you still get to train hard, experience. I, I really like training while traveling, so I get to figure out what, what am I doing today? It's a little like kind of just excursion and I don't take time off is I, I take the least amount of time off I can from training when I travel because I never need a vacation from training. I like training. So mm. I always find it's, it's like fun to go train on vacation, but of mm. course I balance that with, you know, Barb's needs, my partner. And like, if we had been like, let's train at noon, I'd be in a ton of trouble like eating into our vacation, but because of the way it was set up, to where we couldn't do anything uh, touristy until nine or ten a.m., and we could get into the gym at seven thirty. It was it was perfect, so uh, it worked quite well. And um, as far as eating, I was just kind of keeping an, a track in my mind and thinking about it, and not restricting myself, but um, you know, still trying to stay within the kind of the overall rate of weight gain that I'm trying to. I think I'm trying to get. Not that I brought a scale with me or anything like that. It was only a week, but. Um, definitely ate more than I normally would have, but I'm also clocking like, I think I had a 34,000 step day while I was there. So that day I didn't really worry about it, obviously, but, um, my steps were on average twice what I normally get here in Auckland. So I was mm. probably eating closer to 3000 calories versus the 25 to 26 that I had been doing up to that point. Um, so yeah, it was quite easy to stay on track. Um, so, uh, and, and I really enjoyed it and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty experienced. I'm, I'm good at eyeballing food and, um, finding effective ways to train in, in, in different environments. I love the idea of, uh, looking for the gyms in the actual hotels that are like high quality. Lawrence did something prior to actually going to New York as well, but he was actually searching up hotel buffet breakfasts on a rating of, uh, one to 10, which obviously similar, you know, they both, uh, correspond quite nicely into body composition and also proximity to five guys as well. Um, the burger chain though, that. I mean, absolutely. Like ultimately, um, it's, it's probably a little easier in the, like, to be serious for a minute, it's easy in New York. Like we stayed, uh, after worlds when it was in long Island in 2019, um, 
I was coaching, so it wasn't like I needed anything really super specific. But we found a really nice hotel for like obviously in Long Island we were staying at Airbnb, but then that wasn't really in New York. But then afterwards we had some some time in New York, and there's hotels that have like commercial grade gyms on like everywhere there. But um, weight training is not quite as popular in France, so you just don't see. I think it's changing though. Like right now, powerlifting is on a huge rise in in France. Um, and what I have typically observed is that once strength training in a sport takes off in a country, uh, that tells you that, okay, what just came before that probably CrossFit. And then what's going to come after that is the general population uptick. So I think, uh, it's going to be more and more popular in France as the years go by and that the culture will change a little bit, but, um, eating is interesting for people who are traveling to France generally they're probably going to struggle to find like your typical bodybuilding foods and stuff like that. But Paris is a little different. You know, it's such a big hub and you, you can get pretty much whatever you want. Like you can find fish and rice at most places, but like a um, buddy of mine, Matt Cross, shout out. He did his uh, PhD. He's from, he's a Kiwi and he did his PhD in a small like mountain town in France, like on strength conditioning for skiers. And he was like, yeah, I'm, like lunch is a huge meal. Breakfast is is relatively small and it's essentially just a pastry in, in most places. And dinner gets smaller and they eat it really late. And most things are based on like bread and cheese. So it's like, it's, 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 it's a challenge. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but Paris, is, it's like you can find anything. So. so the 30 grams of protein from cheese also comes with about 40 grams of fat. And there's your and, and there's your, your your lack of need for carbs because you're fat loaded to mm. go. So sort of. Yeah, the standard, you know, a bit of cheese, bit of ham, maybe a cigarette for breakfast. I think that's the breakfast <laughs> champions, all things considered. Yeah, you're definitely not going to be short on stimulus. That's for sure. Your coffee and like, I mean, honestly, like breakfast for most people is like a pastry, a cigarette, and and an espresso. You know, so. And Eric, did you say earlier you were practically swimming in Tren or the Seine? I said that we did a, well, actually, I asked you to cut that out. But the, officially what I said was that we did a uh, an hour and a half lunch cruise on the Seine. Ah, um, okay, okay. Officially. Yeah, we'll fix that in post. Yeah, it, it really comes down to what is the WNBF's off-season testing requirements moving forward. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And on a um, on a slightly more serious note, were there any like you know big highlights from the trip? Like, what was your your favorite part? If you had to narrow it down, uh, the catacombs were amazing. Um, in a very kind of like uh, I don't know if morbid is the right word, but um, macabre. That's probably probably the best word for it. But like, I don't know if anyone has saw, saw my stories, but like, there is the catacombs are actually like, they cover like I think like. 30 kilometers of total space or something gnarly like that. But the actual area you go through is quite small and it is just bones upon bones upon bones and so much history. And I uh, definitely recommend audio tour, um, which is just, you know, headphones and you listen to it. And I definitely recommend doing it off season because apparently it gets incredibly like, uh, it, like it's hard to probably appreciate the experience if you're surrounded by people. I, I couldn't imagine what that would have been like. It was, at times, I wish I had a little more distance just up on the few of the people who were there. But the catacombs, 
uh, in Paris are amazing. That's incredible. Um, if you want to do the Louvre and actually go into it, the Louvre is intimidating. It's huge. It feels like being in like the Mall of America, but instead of it being like random shops, it's full of pieces of art. And I, it's the, I think th there was someone who said, look, listen, if you look at each piece of art for two to three seconds and you sprint to the next one, you can get through the whole Louvre in like four days. <laughs> so, I mean, wow. it, it is, it is, it is a, it, it's the biggest museum in the world. And if you actually want to appreciate each piece of art, I saw another analysis that it would take you a hundred days of doing nothing but the Louvre or something like that. Like actually having some minutes to look at it and read the thing and then walk to the next thing. So what I'd really recommend if anyone doesn't want to quote unquote do the Louvre is actually do one of the guided tours. You have to drop a little more point on it, but like, I don't think you can really appreciate it beyond just being like overwhelmed or going to the front and saying, look, I took a selfie in front of the, the glass pyramid. That's not really doing the Louvre. That's like, you know, walking in front of it, you know, you can get a postcard if you want. So I think uh, the Louvre, too, too overwhelming to just try to, let's go do it. I would actually plan to get a tour. The catacombs can't go wrong. Absolutely incredible. Um, and then I think Arc de Triomphe, Eiffel Tower, A, you got to do them. B, though, you probably want to do it off season or it, it's, it would just be like, I think for any introvert or anyone who has like a little bit of agoraphobia with crowds or claustrophobia or it would just be, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a pleasurable experience, but if you can go there when it's not peak season, though, those are definitely worth doing. Fantastic. Well, uh, mate, I want to know a little bit more about your off season now, because you had an absolutely immense season recently. You won your WNBF pro card. You also went over to worlds, which I'm sure was an absolutely immense experience to stand up there in the pro lineup. And I know how much, and I know how much that that meant to you winning that pro card. You know, I think I was actually the first person that you came into contact with as you walked off the stage, gave you a big hug, mate. And obviously the emotions were setting in as you, as you won that award. Um, what is the, I guess, what is your training approach towards, I guess, both training and nutrition in the off season now that you have stepped on that world stage, you know, is anything changing or is anything changed? I know that previously you've dabbled in a few different, you know, fields within, within, uh, lifting, right. Powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, obviously bodybuilding as well. Uh, is this more of like a kind of an all in approach to, to bodybuilding moving forward? Uh, not that you haven't been, but certainly I think standing up there in the pro lineup, it's almost like a, yeah, okay. You know, we got to, we got to knuckle down and, and bring new levels, you know, to the stage. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so first off, thank you. Uh, it was, it was a great season. It was very cool to get to share that day with you. And, and I do very much appreciate just you helping me out backstage. Uh, you and Alex were awesome that day. Um, and um, also just want to say a big thanks to you for everything you give back to the sport, you know, it was great meeting you at the New Zealand show and it was awesome to have you have you there judging. Um, so anyway, um, but yeah, so the big thing is I, I would say like reflecting back upon my career as a bodybuilder, I have always been equal parts strength athlete and bodybuilder and my goals have been like, there's no compromise because my goals are both, right? So I, I have been like, I guess, you know, when people are like, don't you think you do better at strength sport if you just did it or, or vice versa with bodybuilding? And it's like, well, maybe, but that's, that's not my goal. Like, it doesn't feel like a concession when I'm trying to be the biggest and strongest, you know? So, um, I guess I've always taken maybe slightly diagonal approaches to get to the same point. Um, and I also think that 
people probably overestimate how much of a issue not being as specialized is for the majority of your career. Um, like, I think if you looked at like the chest development of someone who started as a bodybuilder or a powerlifter for the first 10 years of their training, like if you took like the genetics of the two people and, you know, the powerlifter was using some accessory work and thinking about hypertrophy because you should, um, and the bodybuilder was trying to do everything optimally and didn't care about strength, I think you'd see very similar pec development. Like, I don't think you'd be able to tell the difference. Probably mm. similar for most muscle groups, but maybe not a few. Um, so to think about it, like how hard is it to throw in some additional accessories for the power lifter or how hard is it, you know, to go the other way if, if, if we were interested in that. Um, I think the, you know, like the, the, the current, like is powerlifting an abomination kind of thing that was going around on, on some of the YouTube channels for 99.5% of people who are consuming that, con that, that content, the idea that you, you should, or would benefit from specialization, I think is totally false. Um, However, there, there does become a point where the opportunity cost at the very least, if not some of the fatigue costs of trying to combine the two, do become a bottleneck. And I, I experienced that and I, and I have to think about how to periodize it. Um, and I think obviously you can juggle them and you can do it at a very high level. And there's examples of that. And there have been since the dawn of strength sport and bodybuilding. But I'm at a point now where um, if I want to progress and present even better on stage i kind of need every advantage in my corner possible um and that also is coinciding with the simple reality of motivation and enjoyment and fulfillment like so what do i get out of participating in, in bodybuilding and powerlifting i get a lot they're very different um but powerlifting is more acutely satisfying it feels like a like 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 a, a more traditional sport i'll say where it's like objective like did i squat more did i deadlift more mm -hmm. did i bench more i can it's i can see when i've progressed that's nice but um bodybuilding is much more transformative because what you have to put yourself through to get up there and just how much truly delayed gratification you need to have and even sometimes at an advanced level just wishing on a star and and trust in the process so like i think i've made progress you know mm -hmm. um some of you gentlemen as you get later and later in your career like um like honestly like jack like dude like you know you've made progress looking at your off-season photos there will unfortunately be a point where you'll be like yeah <laughs> I, I made progress right guys yeah you know it'll be tough when the time comes i know yeah, it, it, it is challenging, as you, but it's a good it's a good place to be. Like it means you've 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 really tapped into the upper echelons of your development, um, and and then it's like, then you're just investing so much, and you're hoping there's a payoff, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think anything you have to put more in with more risk, when it does go well, you get more reward. So a thirty week diet uh, that pushes you to to your limits is. It, it, you, like I, I'm more spiritually invested in bodybuilding if we want to put it that way. And the fact is that I'm just simply a better bodybuilder than I'm a strength athlete. Right. Um, so my, when I look at, all right, what's the reward with the payoff and, and what, what's going to make me a, a happier, more excited, passionate lifter. Like I'm finally at the stage where I'm going, you know what, let's go all in on bodybuilding. So that's by far the biggest change. I have never trained purely for bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's all, I mean, like it depends, like some schools of thought would think I am because they think like five by five and, you know, the big three are an essential movement for anyone who wants to, to, to have development. If you come from kind of more strength influenced uh, bodybuilding approaches, but um, I think from our current consensus on like what's ideal in the bodybuilding community and especially the evidence-based bodybuilding community, it's not a, a, a heavily influenced powerlifting approach. Right. Um, and I would fully agree with that. So this, for me, I, it's, it's more efficient and I don't feel like I'm giving anything up. Like if, if you'd asked me in 2019, like, why don't you go in all in on bodybuilding? Well, I want to do these strongman comps and I want to give another shot at weightlifting and like, uh, but, but now I think because of the success I've had, um, that has been like this feed forward mechanism that's made me really motivated. Like, oh, what can I get more out of myself? Like, what if I really just invest everything in bodybuilding? And is there, is there a chance in hell that I can actually be a competitive pro, not just someone who has earned a place in the pros, but that's probably all we're going to see. And it's uh, this cool thing where I've exceeded my old expectations and goals, maybe not my, my original goals that I set when I was a, a rosy eyed, you know, uh, un, unaware of how competitive it could be or my own potential limits or talents. But, um, I think we all think we're going to be Mr. Natural Olympia when we first start lifting weights or, or would like to. Um, but I, I had high hopes. Those got a little bit squashed, maybe a little bit too much. I got too insecure. And now I've kind of come back from like, oh, maybe I can do more damage than I thought. So I have this, this kind of, I have a carrot that, that, that is, uh, that's, that's motivating me and rewarding me to, to be focused purely on bodybuilding. So by far the biggest change is that I'm purely doing bodybuilding training this off season, um, compared to prior seasons where I was integrating in a periodized format, uh, strength and physique, uh, uh, related training. In terms of your current program design, is there any sort of adjustments or changes or, you know, changes in volumes that have been directed towards specific tissues that you really want to focus on within this off season? How does that sort of look in comparison to perhaps your prior off season? Yeah. So I think um, the, the big thing that I focused on was specifically trying to make myself more symmetrical in the last few years. So there's a big emphasis on uh, delts and lats and trying to bring up specific shots, which I think is really what you have to do at a certain point as a competitive athlete in bodybuilding. Um, like my front symmetry, we wanted to improve. My front lat spread, uh, we wanted to improve. My my frontal bicep, we wanted to improve. So like medial delts and lats were the focus. And my overall package, I think, improved not maybe in large part, but a significant portion because um, my delts got brought up and probably to a lesser degree, my lats, kind of if I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Um, and now that I'm in the pros and like looking at like game footage, comparing me in the middleweight lineup um, as a more balanced competitor now, basically everything needs to come up. Um, for those who are interested in getting a really deep dive on my personal training, you can follow on the Team 3DMJ YouTube. I'm actually going to be putting together another video to come out in the next few days. But um, the first episode of my off-season blog was the four other coaches at 3DMJ giving me feedback on my physique and going into it and talking to each individually, they kind of had some ideas on which body parts would be the most important thing to bring up. But then when they looked at me in the comparison to just to how awesome the pros are, essentially it turned into like, yeah, you need to work on this, but you'd also benefit from having that. And then like when you combined all four of them, 
it's like, okay, so I don't need to train my abs and my calves and my biceps really hard. So maybe it's easier to say what we do need to train. So essentially it's just get bigger everywhere. Mm. Um, the interesting thing about me is I tend to be a relatively high responder in my glutes, hands, quads to a stimulus. And, a, and then I need to do more for uh, pretty much everything else. So even though the goal is to bring everything up, the allocation of the stimulus is still quite quote unquote unbalanced. So I have like 15 to 18 sets on glutes, hands and quads, depending on how, on how you count it. And then we're looking at 20 plus sets on everything else, uh, except for calves. Mm. I'm glad you touched upon that because I think, you know, the, the first thought that a lot of people might have is, oh, I think, you know, volume distribution needs to be even then if I want to grow everything evenly. And I just think that's not the case. I think everybody has those individual tissues that seem to respond very well, where it's genetic proclivities or perhaps the way in which they train, they respond very well to their levers, et cetera. Um, so I think that's an important, you know, aspect to, to note there, but, um, awesome, mate. Yeah, no, we're, we're absolutely stoked to, um, to see your off season and I'll straight after this, get on the, the tube and, uh, watch those, those video logs. Awesome. Yeah. I, they're, they're insightful. The, the first episode was, was, uh, looking at the game footage and then the coach is saying, here's what you need to bring up. The second episode was a, um, a coaching call between me, me and Brian minor constructing the program. Um, and then the third one was me actually going through it. You could see me do each, 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 a set on each one of the exercises and then the kind of cues and the emphasis, um, which has some unique stuff on like, what does an actual RPE nine look like? And, um, how do you manipulate exercise selection so that there's a little more tension at a longer muscle length? And then how do you train efficiently when you have to do high volumes? Like, how do I get through what on paper is 32 sets in a workout? in an hour without throwing up and, you know, the use of antagonist paired sets, drop sets, rest pause, um, and, you know, just more convenient use of machines and cables where you might otherwise have a free weight bias. Mm. Um, so I think there's some practical lessons there. Um, yeah. So, and then also because this is overlapping with my recovery phase, um, there was also some, you know, just to see, I think it's useful for people to see that even at a, a relatively experienced level, that can be a challenging phase. Um, there's one of the vlogs. I'm like, why am I gaining weight on 2,500 calories? Am I broken? You know, um, which I think is a, a common experience. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm, ho I'm hoping that it's both keeping me accountable and, um, you know, like having, a, I think having a coach in the off season for bodybuilding is, is, is going to be a good thing for me that I haven't done before. I've basically, you know, been self coached for that previously in my career. Um, and also, uh, having that be potentially informative for the viewer as to what does this look like and what are the KPIs and all that stuff. And how do you apply some of these principles that, you know, when I talk about in a scientific sense, they're very broad, mm. but individualizing them, it's a very different process, you know, mm. and I've been interacting with people in the comments and they're like, I, I would be crushed by that amount of volume, or maybe I should up my volume. I'm like, no, like what, what is, what do I have? What does my body have to do with yours? You know, mm -hmm. or people struggling with how, why does Jeff do lower volume? And it's, it's still surprising to me, despite the fact that I talk about this so much that people still expect that everyone should be doing the same thing, you know, um, or something very, very similar, or that there's these universal kind of approaches. Um, 
And I think any of you guys who, who've coached for even more than a few years can see that the individual variation is surprisingly broad, you know? Um, and I think it's surprising for most of us just because we value our own experiences so much more highly because we are experiencing them, you know? And like most of what you see on social media are, are people who developed incredible physiques with whatever works for them. Uh, and then just kind of assuming that that would also be the best for other people and not being able to relate to why that isn't the case, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it's really good to get experienced coaches talking about this stuff so that you can really understand like, shit, like I might need to be doing eight sets or 30, you know, to get what's best for me or to break through into my advanced, you know, stages. Mm, um, it's almost like applying that that broad stroke of let's say 10 to 20 sets per muscle and uh and then just thinking okay well that's you know where it needs to land like maybe i even go as far as saying well 15 for everything because it's right right you know right smack in the middle right i'm going to get the best of all worlds and uh and i guess it then takes an experienced individual an athlete and a coach to go okay well maybe it's not ideal to have uh all these volumes here or these landmarks here it might be actually different depending on you know who we're dealing with and it's not an easy process of figuring out how to individualize you know ultimately it's just how good are you at paying attention taking notes teasing apart variables and going through an informed process of trial and error uh, and some of it's just luck like um if you know one of the things i'm grateful for is my exposure to multiple strength sports you know like me being exposed to olympic weightlifting really kind of freed me up from the typical constraints of frequency that we apply in both powerlifting and bodybuilding, where you're getting a lot more muscle damage and eccentric overload. And, um, and then, you know, my experience of getting injured, you know, or, or, or having kind of having FAI, it's not really an acute injury, but deciding to get surgery and seeing how little I needed to maintain my, my muscle mass and how quickly it came back um, it kind of confirmed what I thought I was seeing of like, yeah, it seems like I don't need as much volume in my lower body, but I think the tendency for most bodybuilders is like, well, I'll just do this in case, you know? So it's like, they never really explore low volumes because mm. they don't want to, like, they don't really want to do an experiment that could actually be suboptimal. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Like, oh yeah, I'll try low volumes for like, two weeks and then I'll get antsy and do high volume or, okay, I'll try low volume, but I will also do X, Y, and Z to, to make up for that or something like that, you know? So they're not actually getting a pure comparison. So, you know, like I, I had had these periods of training with higher intensity, lower volume, but I had never had like, okay, you can't train for, for a couple of weeks. You can't do axial loading. You can only do these exercises and then to see what atrophy to what degree, and then, you know, what it takes to get it to come back and gradually coming into it and seeing the disparity between strength and hypertrophy, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then also having it reinforced as a coach, trying this with other people. Um, and, you know, like, obviously I've been training almost 20 years now, so it's a lot of accumulated experience, but I almost wish I had been more experimental and in a controlled way earlier on, because I think if people are willing to try these things, they, they, they will get there. And they want science to be, all right, give me the meta-analysis. Tell me what's best, top of the hierarchy of evidence, and that's perfect. But the, the issue is that you're, you're, you're not the mean, right? Mm. You, you have a good chance of being within one standard deviation of the mean. That's 
what it means to be a standard deviation in a mean, right? But there's a, there's plenty of people who are represented by two standard deviations. And then the population is not intermediate bodybuilders trying to become advanced either, you know? So what you need two years into your career and what you need five or seven years into your career and what you need 15 years into your career is very different. Mm. And like, so people are watching Jeff and like, he's maybe figuring out what's, what can he recover from that's sufficient to maintain him where he's at? Cause he doesn't know if he can actually make progress from here. And he has a family. So like the, the context is important mm. because you, you never really get to a know what's optimal or B even actually do it. You're operating within the constraints of what is most optimal for you at this given time. And then there's complexities on top of that, like we we're talking about, like, and it might differ muscle group to muscle group, you know? So, um, yeah, but ultimately what, what it's come down to is that I've shifted to a more balanced approach. Um, but what produces a balanced approach in an individual isn't going to be the same thing for someone else. And it may not be within your own body. Um, you'll find people who are lower body dominant and upper body dominant, which I think is really interesting. And they need a ton of volume for the lower body uh, mm -hmm. or, or not, you know, and that can vary by muscle group by muscle group, you know, some like pushing musculature responds really well and my pulling doesn't. Um, and some of it, it do, does generalize, but not all of it. Like I, most people have experienced that they can recover from and need more pulling volume and, and work for their back than their pressing musculature. Yeah. But we think about that, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, no one would say that's not the case. It's, it's almost universal. And we think, okay, well, why is that? You know, well, every pressing exercise is hard, like right off the chest. Mm. Failure is a very clear point. You can't get it any further because uh, of, of the strength curve. And guess what? You can see yourself and there's fewer muscles all interacting. And the tension occurs on just a regular, you know, pressing exercise when the muscles are the longer length. But with the back, you can you can cheat it more easily. Uh, the strength curve is really uneven for most mm -hmm. exercises. Uh, there's multiple muscles contributing that can get the job done. You can make it very bicep dominant. You can make it more scapular retraction dominant. You can make it more shoulder extension dominant. So um, I don't think it's any... I, I think the, the two observations that are very common is that back development lags for a lot of people until they're later in their career. Not everyone. And excuse me, that people can handle and typically benefit from higher volumes on their back. I think that has more to do with the biomechanics than it does the genetics of the people involved, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, well said, mate. I wanted to um, take a step back from, I guess, what we've been discussing and sort of look at natural bodybuilding as a, as a whole. And I think all of us here will probably be natural bodybuilding for, for many years to come. And I wanted to get your thoughts on like how you see natural bodybuilding evolving over like the next 10 years and like what do you think are the major challenges that natural bodybuilding will face as an entity i think there's some very interesting things happening right now um the npc and the ifbb are making a big push to benefit from the interest in natural bodybuilding and um I don't know if that will actually be a beneficial thing for natural bodybuilding, because I don't know that the NPC and the IFB are actually committed to natural bodybuilding. I think they, I think they want the business. Mm -hmm. um, but I also understand that anytime there's competition, 
it can drive, you know, better outcomes for the consumer, right? When there's more than one option. And to be frank, um, I think the majority of natural bodybuilding organizations have been not doing a very good job. I think they've been about 10 years behind promotion organization. Um, and uh, they haven't had to level up because they're kind of just infighting and kind of have crabs in a barrel. And this, this is the worst in the States, to be clear. Um, and obviously, some I think federations do a lot better than others. Um, I think from an international perspective, the WBF is awesome. And there's a reason why I was focusing on that. Um, but I think if, if we're to all be honest about who does a better job of promoting the athletes, getting more exposure opportunities and having better ran organizational professionalism, the NPC and IFBB typically do better. You know, the lighting's more consistent and all that. There's more money. There's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a benefit to being a larger kind of singular organization. There's also costs to that. There's a ton of corruption and stuff that when you have a single organization, essentially a monopoly, um, you know, we see that in, in, in any industry, you know, like if you only have one choice for an internet service provider, customer service is typically pretty crappy in your area, right? Um, and I've talked to a lot of people in NPC, IFBB, and they, there's not a really great alternative. And I, I actually, they, that is kind of leveled up when the IFBB split. So I'm really interested to see what happens. The NPC, IFBB, they've made a very big push to move into the natural scene, uh, especially in the States. And I think there's a very real possibility that the natural feds don't get their shit together and become second fiddle to the own thing, the, the thing they, they, they started, you know? Um, but I also think that there will be potentially and hopefully pressure from all the natural competitors who are going to start competing in the NPC IFBB to go, well, wait, wait a minute. Like the testing's inconsistent. Um, how many years drug free is this? I'd have to pass the test on the day. And I think um, to some degree, one of the issues is that natural bodybuilders generally see competing against the, the best competitive field, even if it includes enhanced competitors as like that, like that, that scene is the, the Zenith. Um, I think if natural bodybuilding organizations did better, provided all those, like if they were on the same level as the NPC, IFBB from a uh, organizational professionalism and, and modernization perspective, I don't think people would view it that way. And the reason I say that is because they don't in uh, the, the IPF. It's not like people are like, well, once I win IPF Worlds, now I want to get on the sauce and go win, you know, the the untested feds. Because it's a bizarre world over there. The it's bigger, mm -hmm. you know. The IPF is is the it's it, it's more legitimate. Like they're IOC recognized. They're in the world games and the untested feds are kind of like the way the tested feds are are in, in bodybuilding. Like they don't really have their shit together. Like if you you're not competing against anyone on the same day. You're trying to set a record and then someone else tries to break it. So I don't think it comes down to like, if it was just like who, who, who puts up the biggest numbers or who is the biggest, baddest physique, it would always be natural athletes then going, you know, let me see if I can compete against the guys or gals who are on gear. And I think we think that's what's going on in bodybuilding right now, but I think that's actually an artifact of, natural bodybuilding not being as well organized or centralized and having all of its issues. I think if, if we were 
super on point and really well organized, I think we'd go like, yeah, you could you could go do the Olympia, but like that that's not that's not as real. That's not as legit. But we mm-hmm. feel like the Olympia competitors are more legit, and I think it has more to do with the fact that they're better organized and they're being seen by more people. It's more of a uh, a popularity, prestige, and professionalism thing rather than they're bigger and they 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 they're you know like they're putting up a bigger number like the parallel and powerless thing. Like people, it's more impressive to win IPF Worlds than it is to total more than that person in the same weight class to be in a a more kind of I don't know, mom and pop federation, if you will. And I think that's really what's going on. So I think this new competitive era with also seeing larger numbers, because 2023 was one of the biggest years we've ever had for natural bodybuilding in terms of numbers, number of competitions, quality of athletes, two-day event at Worlds. Um, I think that growth is going to prompt some of these things happening. And I think it's going to be a very rough world and some natural bodybuilding organizations are going to get left in the dust and others are going to step it up. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where things are at in two to three years and what the NPC IFBB does and which natural organizations can, can modernize. Yeah. With, um, I actually had a, a recent inquiry. This was a, about sort of a good six months or so ago. Um, and it was for the Ben Weeders, uh, show over in, in the U S and, mm-hmm. I remember this athlete, you know, really being motivated towards this show. And personally at the time, I'd not heard of the the Ben Wheaters classic before, but it's supposed to be a natural pathway for, you know, competitors to then move on to the Olympia. And I could not get my head around the process of like a natty standing up on stage at the Olympia and having this sort of immediate pathway to, 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 to go onto the Olympia stage. Uh, because I'm thinking, well, I mean, how's this guy going to stack next to, you know, X, X person, you know, on that stage. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I had to really do some research to be like, is this truly a natural show? Like, do, are they really, you know, testing as, as diligently as for example, the WNBF or, um, you know, OCB or, you know, something like that. <laughs> and, you know, I'm still, uh, sort of on, on the fence in, in that regard, but, um, yeah, it's very interesting that, that, um, you know, you have the NPC and the IFBB wanting to go down that path, right? But, um, you know, I guess if it, it, if it represents a, a large portion of our, uh, I guess, the bodybuilding community, then I guess it makes sense ultimately. It's going to be interesting as to how the other federations respond to the big fish starting to swim in the pond, essentially. Yeah, I, I think there is... I could tell you what, what what a poor response would be is to try to tighten the reins and um and draw hard lines i think some of the restrictive things like oh if you could go that route you can't come here that that's it's a privilege to be able to be restrictive you know and and like the ifbb can do that they they can say hey like if you get our pro card and you go somewhere else you lose it because they're the biggest game you know you do that as as the small person in town then people just leave you know because there are potentially a better game in town so i think I think it is incumbent upon uh, the natural bodybuilding organizations to really think about uh, to, to instead of like running a race and looking in the lane next to you and running slower to look in the mirror and go, okay, well, what are they doing that we're not that we can learn from? And then also to think about, okay, what's a differentiator? Like they're not really providing uh, a well-tested level playing field, but I don't think that like, like I said earlier, that's not the main motivator for why natural athletes 
are thinking about going that way, they want fiercer competition. And, mm. and, and not just that, um, but also feeling like they're in a more legitimate organization with a, like, like a more competitive field, more shows, hi hierarchy, like, oh, I have to qualify to get here. Um, and all those things can happen with the growth of natural bodybuilding. And I think we're seeing that. Um, so yeah, t t for those who don't know, um, the Weeders, uh, the Ben Weeders Naturals is, is kind of going to become almost the Olympia. I think winning there and getting Olympia qualifications is just kind of like this cherry on top for now. But I would not be surprised if two, three, four, five years from now, there isn't IFBB Pro League tested events. So you can start competing as a, like you're a, a natural IFBB Pro. Mm. Um, and I think the the real threat there, and, and I'm not trying to help the NPC IFBB, is I, I, I don't think, like, this might sound critical, but the head of the... Uh, the, the the IFBB Canadian uh, affiliate was on a, a podcast talking all about this. I think it was Go Figure, which is actually a, ran by two gals from Australia, if I recall correctly. And just listening to his verbiage, he was like, the natural movement, the natural movement, the natural movement. Like it was very like, I'm repeating a marketing line. And when they did talk about drug testing, it was like, well, you know, we want to make sure that people are, you know, doing the doing the right thing, and you know, but ideally, like, no one, no one's failing these tests, you know, like, sure, like, like I trust the athletes. People are not going to be doing, you know, they're they're not coming here to cheat, you know, like th this is this is, you know, people are, you know, we we need we need to make sure that that they're 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 clean, but um, but you know, for the most part, it's it's us just doing our you know our due diligence, mm, um, people doing the right thing, kind of thing. Yeah, like, you know, I like, I, I don't think like, not a lot of people are going to fail. But you know, we want to make sure that, you know, like, like, it's got to be legitimate, like it needs to, like, there's more about the appearance of it. It mm -hmm. needs to look legitimate for people for it to be, which is true to some degree, but I but it's, it was very much looking at it from the PR lens, um, rather than the lens of, I have the same values as the athletes are doing the show. And there was also this kind of perspective, yeah, like, it's a great place to start, you know, younger athletes, almost without actually saying it, but yeah, but you're going to do real bodybuilding eventually. Right. Like, you know, like you're going to do the, the tested thing and that's great. But then when, when you really like, that's great. Like you take the natural thing as far as you can, good old natural movement. But then when you're ready, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, so it's like, I think the perspective there is not quite in line with a lot of people in the natural community. I mean, there's plenty of people who might see it that way. Um, and there are a lot of people who their goal is, you know, once they've maxed out their natural physique, they want to go enhanced. But I don't think that's the majority. I think mm -hmm. there's sometimes that that is viewed as as a way to go because bodybuilders want to keep going up the ranks. But again, I think if if let's say the WNBF was as dominant in bodybuilding as the IPF was in powerlifting, I don't think we'd see that view. So I, I don't think that's the, the natural state. Of, of bodybuilders like, oh, I just always want to be competing against the biggest next, next biggest thing. I think they want to feel like they're competing in the most legitimate sporting organization as competitors. Um, and that may or may not co-vary with, with staying drug-free, depending upon the individual values of that athlete and what the community is like. So I am very, I'm very skeptical that the NPC IFBB is going to do a good job of shepherding actual natural bodybuilding 
I think they're going to provide a more level playing field. And I do think that athletes generally, when you have the option, they're going to do the right thing and compete where they're, they're able or, or supposed to. But not when you start putting like Olympia qualifications and IFBB pro cards on the line, because if they can convince themselves like, yeah, this is a natural show, then I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, I, I think that's the main reason why people cheat is because they think they're doing what's normal and accepted. It's just not talked about. So I think when you see lower, lower incidences of cheating in certain feds because they polygraph test, because they talk about it, because they're a little more self-righteous, maybe more than I would like it, they create a culture of people going, oh, like this is legit. I can't look myself in the mirror and cheat and, and think mm -hmm. I'm doing something that everybody else is doing. Um, so I think the stance is important. And right now, the stance that I've seen from the NPC IFBB is not, not the way that I'd want it. You know, like we're going to take a, a certain number, screen them and, you know, do some polygraph testing. And we haven't figured out whether there's a certain number of years drug free that's required yet. We'll sort that out. Like that's, that's secondary to us, you know, setting up a show in every state that's natural and, and having Olympia and getting the exposure and, and promoting it and going on podcasts. So it's, I think for many natural bodybuilders, the fact that there's legitimate testing and an effort to make as level of a playing field as possible is central, not something to figure out after you get all the other cool stuff sorted. Mm, mm. Not for everyone, but I, I think um, that is, that's something that is going to be a clear differentiator between like, let's say the WVF really keeps stepping things up. And I, I think they can, I think they will. And I think they actually have slightly more international, um, number of affiliates, number of shows than actually the IFBB does because of the IFBB split. So for those who don't know, the IFBB split in 2017, that was a split between the NPC IFBB Pro League and then the international affiliate of the IFBB that was actually associated with the World Games and IOC recognized. And then they started competing. The IFBB International started having IFBB shows everywhere. And that's the IFBB Pro Elite pathway. And then the NPC started having IFBB in other countries that was, but still owned by the NPC, the Manions. So like IFBB Pro League in, in New Zealand is NPC affiliated, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's actually messy and complex, but there's just basically two big untested orgs right now that are more and more tested, right? That have now like tested pathways in both. So the, uh, the scene is changing a lot from an organizational perspective. And I ultimately think it's gonna be good for natural bodybuilding. I think we're eventually going to get to a point where we have more legitimate shows uh, that are bigger and uh, more competitive. And the question is whether they're going to be, um, whether the problem will be, or the thing that people want them to work on is better, more consistent testing. So it's legitimate and we have less fake natty accusations, right? Which, you know, it's going to happen regardless, but there'll be legitimate concerns if I think the NPC IFBB is running it. Or is it going to be, guys, can you can you modernize? Can you do a better job with social media, promotion, lighting, getting stuff up if, you know, the the national organizations are, are the ones who are able to step into the void and, and compete? But I think to some degree, they're going to have to fix those things if they want to compete at all. Um, live streaming, commentating, uh, better results being put up, you know, all that, all that, all that good stuff. But I think... Um, I, I can't predict which is going to happen, but I know that regardless, both are going to get better. Both providers of, of quote unquote natural shows, the 
what we've traditionally seen as natural bodybuilding, your ICNs, your, uh, your A and Bs, your WBFs, your OCBs, um, they're going to have to step it up. And I think they will to, to some degree. And I know the NPC IFBB is already looking, how do I compete with them? And that's going to be a level of exposure that most natural athletes are not used to. So I think the consumer wins right now, no matter what, but I think the integrity and the future of the sport is a bit at risk and up in the air in that process. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So I actually have a question on when you won your pro card. I want to know what actually went into that season that might have been different from the last seasons. I know that the boys on the BDU podcast are very big in regards to like doing their pre-prep phases now, mm. taking a little bit of weight off, making the prep a lot easier. I know, also know that you had Alberto, especially on the back end of the prep. What did you make adjustments for this prep to ensure that you know you look the best you possibly could to try and get that pro card? Great question. So I did a pre-prep phase in 2019, but I didn't uh, this time. So um, the thing I noticed in 2019 was that even dieting from, I think I was I started at 90 kilos and I got down to the, basically the same stage weight. So just under 80, um, staying lean for like, you can get leaner earlier doing that, but then you have a shelf life of how long can I stay shredded? So for me, I got shredded in May and I competed until August. So like May, June, July, August, like four months in stage condition, I started to tap out at the end. And I knew that was going to be the case either way, but I wasn't sure if it would be worse, better, or the same if I didn't do the pre-prep phase. So instead of um, basically having my season run from like April to, to August, uh, this time I was like, all right, I'm just going to diet and then just do a lot of shows in a shorter, narrower window. So I had to go from, instead of 90 to 80, I went from like 96 to 80. But I started my diet in February with plans to compete end of September through November. So I, I shortened the window of how long will I be shredded. And it worked out really well. I wasn't tapping out at all. Um, I probably could have kept going, I think. Not that I needed to. So um, that was the big one. And I had Berto in my corner for both this season and last time throughout the whole time. And um, yeah, he, uh, I think probably the combination of the two would be the best of both worlds, you know, start the prep at 90, but then start the diet like in April or something like that. And Eric, I wanted to um, ask a, a slightly different type of question. Obviously you're the bodybuilding guy. So it only makes sense that we focus on bodybuilding, but this may put you on spot a little bit, but it's a common question that you hear guests asked on some more contemporary podcasts. If you had to have yourself at a dinner with five other guests, do you know who your starting five would be to create some good conversation? Who's making your list? And they could be past or present. Well, I would only have one person left after the four of you guys. So good point. I don't know. Probably, uh, Maybe you guys and Martin Luther King. I mean, he'd be a distant fifth, but uh, yeah, no, no, in all seriousness, if I could have dinner with any five people, that would be very challenging. I think uh, Stephen Hawking would be on the list. Um, it'd be really cool to, to pick his brain. Um, I think it would be also pretty cool to have... Uh, yeah, well, I don't speak English. Are, are we? Are we just? Isn't magic? Like, can I just be able to pick anyone's brain? Yeah, okay. Like, like the original, like Siddhartha, you know, like the original original Buddha. That'd be cool to to get his ideas on on suffering and all that. 
um, might translate very well to uh, the bodybuilding preps in the future. <laughs> yeah, explaining bodybuilding to him when he was like, so hold on, <laughs> what, what do you guys start doing in the late 1800s? Like, <laughs> those are idiots. Um, like, I had to do that, or, you know, like, there's anyway, that'd be kind of interesting. Um, I think it would be pretty cool to have that. That's like the only people who aren't going to be in the bodybuilding scene. I would love to also have like Dave Draper. Um, he recently passed a couple of years back. Uh, but I, I think philosophically as a bodybuilder, he's really cool to, to read his writing and stuff like that. Um, I got to spend a little bit of time with Tommy Kono before he passed. I went to a, a seminar that he put on, I think in 2010, but Tommy Kono was one of the most, uh, I think he's won more medals across multiple weight classes and weightlifting than anybody. Um, but he had a really interesting life. You know, he, he was a, a Japanese American during World War II. So he grew up in an internment camp where he actually learned to do the Olympic lifts. Um, and he competed in bodybuilding and weightlifting when that was a very normal thing. And he was actually a Mr. Universe winner and also a gold medalist um, and was a coach for a long time. And he was a champion of, of women's weightlifting and he was a, a women's weightlifting coach for a long time. So getting his perspective would be really cool. Um, yeah. And I think also be pretty cool to sit down with and, and, you know, he's a, he's a weird dude. Like when you really look at it, but Eugene Sandow, like he was like this some snake oil marketing back in the day. And, but just to get his, like, like, like how much of what he did was planned and where do you think it was going to go and just kind of get perspective on what was it actually like at the first great competition. Um, and his view on like, I would love to see what, what like his brain would probably explode if like the effects of anabolic steroids and the size of physiques, but just his, his view of modern bodybuilding, like, probably make him depressed for the rest of the dinner. But um, it would be interesting to see um, what he, the, con the conception in the late 1800s to early 1900s of what bodybuilding was versus the way I see it now. And, and is our, even our historical understanding of what we think it was like for him accurate or was it a little different? And just how much the physical culture was more unified. Like the idea of training for strength or hypertrophy would be like, what? What do you, what do you mean? You know, it's, it's just, it's, so it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition. So those, those would be my five. It'd be interesting to do like a, a physique reveal. Like you sit down and you're like, this is what Ronnie Coleman looked like in 2000. <laughs> Did you expect yeah. athletes on stage would ever look like this? I, I think, I think it really would break some brains. It also would be, I think it'd be disheartening. I don't think you'd be like, wow, good job. You know, like, like I think for other sports, like if you were to 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 show someone like yeah high jump, they jumped a meter higher, and you guys like oh my god that's incredible, you know, um, or like I used to be involved in breakdancing, and when I look at breakdancers that came 15, 20 years after me, I'm like whoa like I you can do that many like air flares like what and like that, that's that's normal, you know like or, or but um and it's impressive and it's like oh man the whole sports leveled up. I don't think that would be there. <laughs> like a 280 pound shredded guy on stage you're like wow so you guys just don't care about aesthetic proportions or the greek ideal or the combination of health strength and physique at the same time you just you're you, you just you're just making like cows with with you know antibiotics and, and steroids and then they you, they get on stage and, and you're, not, cow you're not wearing leggings like and... so yeah 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 true yeah my man listened to the episode exactly Looks so, like a uh, a cow with a myostatin deficiency. Yeah, not that they would know what that is either. But I think the yeah, I I don't 
like, I mean, if you just look at some of the things that say Arnold or Frank Zane or Sean Ray, even like some of the people have said about how big guys have gotten now. And that's from just like 20 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the, the, the Olympian, the contemporary Olympians sometimes have to keep their, like basically anybody before Dorian Yates is kind of like you catch him on a feisty day and they're going to be like, it's been taken too far. This is trash, you know? And I don't think that's an uncommon view or we wouldn't have the classic division. Right. But um, it's, I, I think, man, you go back to 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years before that, it would just be like heads exploding. So I've actually got like a similar question to what Lawrence asked, but also different at the exact same time. Who would be your biggest positive influence on who you are today in regards to bodybuilding? Now there is a little caveat to this. It can't be your wife. And the reason behind that, because is obviously, you know, she would win. And then if she didn't win, you'd also be sleeping outside for the next week. Well, I will say very, very truly, she would be up there because she gave me, I wouldn't say she gave me an ultimatum. It wasn't like, I'm going to divorce you if you keep doing bodybuilding this way. But we had a very serious chat after my 07 season about how unbalanced and unhealthy it was um, that I think it was hard for me to see the degree that it was affecting her because of how obsessed that first season was that did make me go, Oh, okay. Like, Oh, there's okay. I need to think about this differently, which opened the door for a lot of other things, but I would say probably Jeff Alberts. Um, he's the one like he, he 3d muscle journey was a, a blog for his return to the sport and a website and, um, him like in many ways, I fast-tracked my philosophical approach to bodybuilding and finding balance and doing it in a healthier way and promoting it in a way that I think is far more sustainable um, because he went through, you know, two decades of, of trying to figure that out the hard way first, you know, before there was really any kind of good perspective. You know, people often think about like, oh, Jeff Albers did the hard way, like he cut water and there there's magazines, he had bad information. Like they kind of look at it just from the evidence-based perspective. But what I don't think people realize is that there, there just wasn't a lot of people talking about the why and the journey and thinking about it beyond this next contest prep. And like, what what is, like, are these 12-week crash diets serving you as an athlete long-term to have a career or are they serving you to burn out in five years, you know? And that's, and that was something that I noticed, like even that was true in natural bodybuilding or enhanced bodybuilding. This wasn't the conversation, you know? Um, Nobody was talking about um, struggling with, with like binge eating post-show, even in the natural community when we first got, first got started. And I think Jeff's, realness and is willing to share the the pros and the cons and um how you know focusing on the win and the pro card is is can be a double-edged sword and uh how it can be a lonely pursuit if you don't do it right um and then finding a way to make what is an individual sport more of a community oriented thing which which is something he did um all of that resonated with me so strongly reinforced the right things um, made me question the things that weren't going well and also gave me a purpose. Like it's, that's why my career is what it is as well. Not only my, my own personal pathway as an athlete. 
I think it's very hard not to look past Jeff Alberts for a very large, probably portion of the natural bodybuilding community. He's been in the game for so long, probably one of the longest in the game right now. And not only that, even the way he balances family life actually with the prep now itself. Like I remember even his longer prep last time, he, you know, deliberately did like nearly a year long prep. I think it was the prep before this one, just so he could actually have more balance with his family. So being able to incorporate that into the prep, still know that you're ticking the boxes as an athlete, but you know, still allowing for that family time, which, you know, sometimes does take the back burner on a very large majority of the athletes that actually do compete. Yeah. I also love that he publicly changes his mind and tries different things. Like he's pulled out of preps, you know, I think his willingness to, I think a lot of people do similar things, but they, they won't share it on social media or they won't talk about it in a way that like, it makes it seem like it was intentional or that was all part of the plan or, they just go dark for a while and don't talk about it. Um, but like Jeff recently was on a podcast, I think it was Revive Stronger. And he was saying, you're like, I think I was wrong about the really, really long prep. Like, here's the reason I did it. I was doing it for everything you just talked about um, to, to specifically be less burden on my family. But being like 80% present for a year is probably not as bad as me being 60% present for 12 weeks, you know? And he's like, you know, like, I think when the family can see the light at the end of the tunnel and I can just focus and I'm not being pulled in both directions, it's actually better for everybody. And I'm going to try that moving forward. Um, you know, so like him being transparent and keeping it real with his, uh, the things that have worked, haven't the whys, the struggles, you know, how he's, you know, binged in the middle of contest prep, which happens. I can tell you as a coach a lot more frequently than people will admit. Um, uh, you know, struggle with weight gain in the postseason period. Um, you know, dealing, working around injuries, um, prioritizing family, and, and showing like you don't have to necessarily really give up much. You know, um, I think it's been been great. Um, Brian Whitaker has also been a big influence on me for those same reasons, and on Jeff. Jeff will tell you that Brian is a great example of that. When we had him on Iron Culture, um, he talked about optimizing within the constraints, and I think that's all like that's all anyone actually can do but they don't think about it that way and it's really cool to see that brian does and for anyone who doesn't know what the hell i'm talking about or maybe has been in the sport say after 2015 brian whitaker uh was the first to win the yorton cup and the wbf worlds in the same year and he did so as someone i would say who has obviously you know you don't have bad genetics doing that he's got top tier genetics doesn't have like the tippity top super freak genetics but he beat people who were probably had better symmetry and more muscularity than him by bringing a level of conditioning that was just unheard of and peaking amazingly well at both those shows. Um, and what's crazy is that he's got kids um, and he's a, an economics professor. So, and when he ranks things, he would put his family, his career and his spirituality before bodybuilding. It's a fourth. But he does everything within his power to optimize bodybuilding while having it in fourth place. And I think the typical athlete, they'll, they would have this gut reaction. Like one of us might've even had a little bit of a gut reaction. Like, oh, that's not right. Just listening to that, even though we, we fight it and we think, oh no, this is worth the compromise, you know, him putting it in fourth because, you know, we want to be a good human. We have certain morals, we have beliefs about the importance of family and a career and all those things, but it still feels like, oh no, like, in an ideal world, I'd be able to go all in bodybuilding. But I think the reality is, is that bodybuilding doesn't 
like when you really think about what do I need to do day to day? Like there's no reason it should be all consuming and take you away from, you know, your, your, your economics professorship, right? Like I'm on a high volume program that, that's most people are in the comments are like, how do you even do that? Six hours per week of training. Like, honestly, like, and, and maybe if, if I was hanging out with friends and I didn't do some supersets, maybe like I could see someone training for 10 hours total per week. But when I hear a bodybuilder training for 10 hours per week, not, not a powerlifter, I think, okay, so you take longer rest than you need and you have friends who you train with. Right. So I think you do that. And then once you have the, the nutritional know-how, like, okay, I get enough protein. I have a decent meal distribution. I eat my micronutrients, but like everyone stops to eat a meal. Like, you know, all humans eat, you know, it's not like you're, you're putting in the hard extra yard. So it's like, like, what do you really need to do extra? Just do chew with more aggression, you know? I need to be thinking <laughs> about protein synthesis for to occur. Even if you drink it as well. There you go. So like, I think the the perception is more of it's it's an emotional thing. Like we we think of like the last dance, or we think of these these athletes who have sacrificed the Rocky story. It's like no, it's got to take you your whole life to be a champion. You can't do all those things together, or or you could have been greater, you know. But I think to see someone who doesn't have elite level top tier genetics bring the kind of condition shows that he put in more work than almost anybody knows how to do. He pushed his physique to the nth degree and won, you know, the, the, the best titles while having it in fourth place. I think that's also something that's, that's quite inspiring and, and hopefully a sobering reality for some people who are maybe painting themselves into a corner where they're making concessions. They don't have to. Um, I think that's, that's really valuable. I think Alberto Nunez is also quite good at that. Um, I think he showed people that you can take a more intuitive approach and improve and, and optimize things. And, um, you know, I, I, I just think all those are really important messages and they did not, they weren't really around until some of those people were, were, were talking about it more, more publicly. So yeah, Brian Whitaker, Alberta Nunez, Jeff Alberts, huge influences on me. Hmm. I think that's a, a lot of wisdom there, mate, and a very good place to to end today's podcast, which we didn't mention earlier, as we usually do, is episode 90 of Bodybuilding Down Under. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us, man. Like, I speak for all the guys here when we say that you're a huge inspiration to us all. You know, we've long said that, you know, you're the one who sort of binds the experience and the science and the passion and the history and the culture and everything. So, we just really appreciate having Captain America on Bodybuilding Down Under with us today. And yeah, we'll obviously link all of your stuff so that people who aren't already following, if they're not, they can find you. Um, but from all of us here at BDU, we just want to say a massive thank you for coming on today, man. First, let me just, in all seriousness, uh, big thank you guys to having me on. Um, collectively, what you guys are doing for the natural bodybuilding community in Australia, obviously, it's huge, but I think brought more broader. I think your guys are having more of an impact than you realize. Um, the natural bodybuilding scene in Australia is something that I think most people should be envious of. And I think you guys are a huge part of that because you are blending evidence-based practice, experience, a community feel, um, and just general uh, positive support and big picture thinking and um I think a collaborative approach that is rarely seen. So um, 
yeah, you guys are doing a fantastic job shepherding the scene and it's inspiring to see. So thank you guys for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege. We'll thank you, mate. Means a lot. Well, guys, as always, you know where to find us. We'll be back every Wednesday with a new episode of BDU. Thank you very much for tuning in today. We'll catch you next week. Mm -hmm.